Thanks, Georgina. That was well read. And I, I guess um, everyone's kind of thinking, wow, that's a parable for Valentine's Day, isn't it? Um, and we'll get there. That really is a parable for Valentine's Day. Um, it's a preamble to, to how much we are truly loved. But we'll get there in a moment. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the elders at Real Life Church. I'm married to Becky. We have three children, Joel, who's 18 and at uni, Caitlin, who is 16 in sixth form, and, and Isaac, uh, nine and, well, he's 10 now, and in year five. Uh, we've, we've lived in the UK since 2008, but before that, we lived in, in South Africa. And, and some of you know that, um, that one of the things I loved doing while in South Africa, and a little bit in the UK, was surfing. I, I've been surfing since I was um, 11 years old, I think. I finally convinced my parents to buy me a, a board for 99 Rand, which I think is the equivalent of about 50p um, thereabouts, and um, got out in the water with a bunch of friends at a, a place that we used to go to on holiday, and the bug bit, and I never looked back. Absolutely love the sport. Um, the reason I, I share that with you is, is some of you may know about a, a New Zealander called Ian McCormick. And Ian McCormick, in, in 1982, he, he'd, um, he'd left his home, he, he was kind of in his early 20s, and he wanted to go and see the world. So, so he was going to live the endless summer, that dream of exploring the world and looking for the perfect wave. And while he was traveling around, he found himself in Mauritius. And one night, he was um, night diving for lobster. And while he was diving, uh, he was stung by five box jellyfish. Now, um, for those of you that don't know, box jellyfish are probably the most venomous creature um, that in, in, in the sea. And he was stung by five of them in a, a very remote setting late at night. And um, the long and the short of it is, is he, he struggled and struggled and struggled to get to hospital. And eventually, in the ambulance, he... He, um, he went into shock and felt himself passing away. And um, then the next thing he knew, he, he woke up again in a morgue. So he had died on the, in, in hospital and had been taken through to a morgue. And in the morgue, um, one of the nurses pricked his foot just before putting him away and he woke up. Uh, part of the story is, is what was happening while he was unconscious and while he died. And Ian, Ian wasn't a Christian. His mom went to church. His dad kind of went to church. They were, were at an Anglican church and um, she, his mom prayed for him. But, but at an early age, he said, Mom, Christianity is not for me. I don't believe in God um, and I don't want to go to church anymore. So she, she honored that and she continued praying for him. But during this experience, Ian became a Christian. He, he, he dove into the water an atheist, and by the time he woke up in the morgue, he believed in God and became a Christian. And to this day, he, he tells the testimony of, of what happened during that time. So I'd, I'd encourage you to go and look up um, a little bit more about Ian McCormick. But the truth is, we've all heard stories about people who've who've come close to death and, and having come close to death, they, they have a renewed 
like appreciation for for their loved ones for for experiences which they took for granted for the world around them and I suppose that the the crux of it is is that sometimes you need some very bad news you need you need to go through the fire you need to have a, a terribly difficult experience to be able to appreciate what is beautiful and what is truly valuable and, and what is worthy of your time and your energy and and this is an example of that this is a this is a tough parable i mean jesus generally doesn't pull punches but this one is hard and um, like a lot of hollywood movies with with happy endings he doesn't give you a happy ending in this one this parable condemns it brings us close to death but it offers a, a vitally important lesson for us and it it serves to shine a, a blazing light on the, the depth of love expressed in Christ's work on the cross. And I hope you get that tonight. I hope as, as we work our way through the parable and, and the implications of it, that you, you get the gravity of the situation and you, you get how much you are loved despite the gravity of that situation. And by the end of this evening, Valentine's Day is is it takes on a whole new new meaning for you so just a little bit of context jesus is is now in jerusalem he's just been welcomed in as he he rode in on a on a donkey and um, he has cleared the temple of the money lenders and before that he was teaching the disciples about forgiveness we, we heard some of that last week from andy martin remember how many times shall we forgive 70 times seven times and he's that was with his disciples he's now in jerusalem he's now in the public again and he's been challenging the the chief priests and the elders about the baptism of john in particular by asking them a a, a provocative question he he's basically saying to them so who who is it that that is actually obedient is it is it the one who says yes to their father but then then walks away and doesn't do what the father asked them to do? Or, or is it actually the, the one who says no to the father, but then later changes their mind and comes around and does what their father has asked of them? And he, he does that in, in, in the light of uh, the tax collectors and prostitutes all going to John, flocking to John and repenting. And being baptized but the, um, the the chief priests and the Pharisees looking on and kind of being a little bit smug about it and not quite sure about what what they're seeing but even then when they see the fruit of what's coming out of John's ministry they still don't um, they, they still don't repent they still don't see that he is heralding in the Messiah and um, he tells them that the reason tax collectors and sinners heard John's call and were willing to repent is because they've heard God. And, and he has convicted them of their disobedience. Whereas the priests and the, the elders have smugly ignored the voice and have said that um, they, they're the ones that have said that they will obey to their father, but, but they're not yielded in their heart. And and actually they walk away and they don't do what their father has asked them to do. They, they are the disobedient ones. 
And with this parable, he kind of goes a little bit deeper. He, he actually he offers them an insight into the, the true nature of their state before God. He, he kind of he pulls back the veil on, on what's really going on inside of them. And it makes them angry. Make, make no mistake, it makes them angry. But that doesn't mean that what Jesus is doing here is, is not loving. It's probably one of the kindest things he could do. He, he lets them see something that they were probably not fully conscious of. And the real problem is not that they are smug or, or that they're perhaps ignorant or, or forgetful or weak-willed weak or, or prone to mistakes. The true problem is, is that their hearts are, are violently opposed to God. They're not just neutral. Their, their hearts are angry and hateful towards God. So once again, Jesus tells a story, but, but he doesn't leave anything to the imagination with the story. He uses symbols that are, are plainly understood. The chief priests and the Pharisees knew that he was speaking about them. In verse 45, um, it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that it was them that he was speaking about. So he, he uses these symbols. He, he uses the master of a house. And with that, he's referring to God. And he refers to the vineyard, which is Israel. It's, it's a picture of Israel that's been used throughout the Old Testament. And the Pharisees would have understood that well. And with the tenants or the, the farmers, the, the tenant farmers, he's referring to Israel's religious leaders. And, and what he's doing is he's painting a picture of, of the fact that Israel is God's. God made Israel. He is, this is his vineyard. It's his farm. And he's set the boundaries around her and he's provided for her in, in sustenance and in protection and he's put men in place to, to tend to her and to nurture her so that she would be fruitful. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of how God has provided for his people. And it would be a, a wonderful picture for Israel as they're listening to Jesus about, about the faithfulness of God in their history. And then he, he introduces the servants coming to collect um, the, the, the landowner's share of the crop at harvest. And the reference there is clearly to, to God's prophets. And as he's talking about the fact that these tenant farmers um, chose to kill those servants rather than to give them the share that was due to, to the landowner, they, they must have felt sick inside. They must have, they must have felt like totally convicted because they knew that, that, that Jesus was referring to them. And, and these servants that he's talking about, they knew were the prophets. They were the, the very ones whose, whose words are preserved in our scriptures till today. And they're the, the ones that they referred to when they looked at their scriptures and reminded Israel of the hope that they had in the coming Messiah that would liberate them. And we know that those prophets were persecuted and killed by those 
that were caring for Israel. Those prophets brought God's word, but God's people despised them. They despised them because even though they postured as godly, they actually hated God. And they hated his call to repentance that came through his prophets. And he sends a second group of servants and they do the same thing. He's giving them an opportunity to repent. He's letting them know that he's aware of what they've done. And yet he sends more servants with the risk that they would face the same fate, offering the tenant farmers the chance of reconciliation. And they do the same thing again. They kill the servants. And then finally, we see that the master decides to send his son because surely they would respect the son. And, and we look at the parable and we go, oh, this, this is obviously Jesus. Jesus is referring to him himself here because he's the son of God. But, but this is prophecy at this point because Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't been killed yet. And so he's speaking prophecy about what is to come. And this part then was probably a little bit harder for the chief priests and the Pharisees to understand. But they did know that Jesus had been claiming to be the Son of God. And so it's not hard for us to imagine that they, they realized that he discerned the, the wicked intent of their heart. He wasn't surprised by the fact that they wanted him dead. That was obvious. But they didn't want him dead because they thought he was an imposter or a heretic or, or, or guilty of blasphemy. They wanted him dead because their status at the top of their power pyramid was threatened by him. They were the tenant farmers. They had control of the vineyard. They, they had um, the fruit coming into their coffers. And here comes the heir to take it from them. And so they say to each other, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance for ourselves. And, you know, it's not the only place that Jesus addresses them in this way. There's in, in John 8, verse 42 to 45, he, he is quite clear with the Pharisees. He says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I'm not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now we all know that at this point, the killer blow will be delivered. But Jesus, in, instead of delivering it himself, asks the priests and the Pharisees to offer with their own mouths the only right judgment that they could offer. He says to them, he asks them, when therefore 
the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they say, knowing that the tenants in the parable are in fact them, that he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. The tension, the tension must have been palpable. Just, just imagine the silence at that point. Even the donkeys had stopped braying. The birds had stopped chirping. And Jesus breaks the silence by saying, have you never read in the scriptures? Of course they had. They were immersed in the scriptures. Christ knew that they had read what he was about to quote. And his point was not that they, they weren't learned. His point was that prophecy was playing out before their eyes and they did not perceive it. Jesus was quoting Psalm 118, verse 22 to 23. And the priests and the Pharisees could now see that they were the builders, as far as Jesus was concerned. They were the builders that rejected the stone that was always going to be the cornerstone of their faith. They were busy rejecting Christ, the very, the very focal point of everything that they claimed to believe. Mic drop. Point made. And it made them mad. Now it's easy to look at this with a, a slight smirk as, as Jesus lays into the Pharisees again. But the truth is that the lesson that he was teaching them is for each and every one of us. He's talking to them here, but the lesson is applicable to you and it's applicable to me. It's applicable to everyone that we love and know. When the mic drops, it should be our breath that is held. It should be our eyes that stop blinking. It should be our hearts that, that sink. So many people and so many popular preachers gloss over this part of the gospel. They say things like, can we just focus on the good stuff? People know how bad they are. Jesus didn't gloss over this. He didn't even get to the good stuff in this parable. He leaves it at the end of the bad stuff. And he does it because the truth is that people don't know how bad they are. They have no idea how grave their situation is. And even more so in our day and age where we don't even want to talk about sin or responsibility or, 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 or wrongdoing. And we like to be talking about relativism and, and your right and my right and your truth and my truth may be different. And it's all okay. So don't judge me. I've just got a different view to you. 
We soften the gravity of our sin. And the problem with this is, is that when we look at Christ on the cross, we equally devalue the gravity of the gift that was given to us. We, we don't appreciate it. We're a bit like, we're a bit like a young kid who's, who, who takes life for granted because everything's come too easily to them. And, and so they don't appreciate their family. They don't appreciate their friends and how precious they are. They don't appreciate all of the provision that comes around without them thinking about it. And the gift of this very, very tough story is it gives us a view of the horror that Christ rescues us from. And in so doing, it allows our hearts to grasp the wonder of his unmerited love. A little bit like someone who, who comes out of a coma after a terrible accident. It's a terrible, terrible experience. But it teaches us a, a wonderful truth. A life-changing truth. Back to last week. Why, why did Jesus tell Peter to forgive his enemy 70 times 7? Because the truth is compared to the forgiveness that he's received in Christ, any sin, listen to me, any sin, any wrongdoing committed against him is trivial. It is so small. The lesson that Jesus was teaching Peter is a lesson that we need to learn. Our lives should, should, should not be marked by bitterness. It should be marked by, by a carefree nature of, of one who's been given a second chance that they, they didn't deserve. Like a, a servant whose unserviceable debt has been written off. Just imagine the relief that that servant would feel. Just imagine the levity in their their heart, the lightness with which they suddenly stepped, knowing that that weight had been taken off of them. Or in this case, like ruthless murderers who, who, who we find out have been forgiven by the father of their victim. There's no time. There's no time for storing up bitterness and anger. There's no time for worrying about where the next whatever is coming from. There's, there's no time to hanker after the, the good old days or, 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 or when life was, was better. Why? Because there's nothing better than being reconciled to God. The God who we called our enemy. The God who we hated with every ounce of our being. The one whose property we were willing and happy to steal and take as our own and the one whose son we would murder he turned our hatred around and he used it as a, a means for our forgiveness we killed him and with that very act he rescued us and that's the beauty of this parable a little bit like Ian McCormick this parable gives the hearer the opportunity to, to face the reality of their situation and prepare their hearts to meet 
a God that loves them so much that he is willing to die to make reconciliation with them. There's some huge lessons in here for us, and, and some of them are plainly obvious, but I just wanted to highlight four for us to, to meditate on in, in the week ahead. First off, please don't be deceived. I've heard too many people say that God is capricious to condemn men to hell. Understand this. Our sin is grievous. It is more grievous than we could ever imagine. The fact that we trivialize our sin and make it about being naughty or forgetful or cute like a naughty little boy or, or naughty little child is, is not the reality of the situation. The reality of our condition is that we actively hate God. We are not the recipients of his wrath because he hates us, we rally against him in our natural state. And when he judges sin, he is righteous in judging it harshly. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 to 10, Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Not just deceitful, it is deceitful above all things. It lies to you. It tells you that you're not that bad. And it's desperately to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God is just. Secondly, this is so important for you and it's so important for your friends. Christ's sacrifice was not for his friends. It's not for, it wasn't for those that got on with him or for those who deserved it. It was for his enemies. He gave his life for you when you were his enemies. He gave his life for those who despised him. You need to remember that when you walk this earth. You walk this earth with a number of people who despise God. And yet he died for them. And so he would ask us to love them in this view. Romans 5 verses 7 through 10 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare. Right. So third point. Don't be surprised when the world hates you because you love him. I mean... Honestly, I know it hurts. I know it feels terrible, but I am surprised by how often I hear Christians saying how they, they can't believe how they are being treated because of what they believe. John 15 verse 18 says, if the world hates you, this is Jesus speaking, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If, if our natural stance in our hearts is to hate God and then Jesus rescues us and causes us to love him and gives us a new heart and in essence makes us a new creation 
one that, one that no longer lives in our own strength, but in the strength of Christ, who, a being that walks around on earth and, and represents God, don't be surprised when you're treated like the prophets and like Jesus. The default position of the human heart is, is hatred towards God. And normally it's disguised in some kind of civility, but the default position is hatred. Don't be surprised when that hatred is directed to you when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, regardless of the challenges we face, whether it be being locked down and not being able to be with your friends that you're now learning to appreciate, or being stung by a box jellyfish, or, or having a terrible accident, or having to deal with the death of a loved one, or, or going through a terrible war. Remember this, that Christ's great love in the face of all of those challenges should overwhelm our hearts with joy. And it should be. The only way that it rightly should be expressed is, is in worship and awe and thanksgiving. In Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7, we are told to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I know for me, this is the kind of love I want. On Valentine's Day, when, when we choose to, to celebrate love, I challenge you to consider your definition of love. So much of what we celebrate on this day is 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 going to disappoint. It's based on what will make us happy, what makes, what satisfies us. But when we see the love of Christ, we see a, a love that, that isn't based on, on how good the, the recipient of our love is. It's a love that pours out sacrificially for those that don't deserve it at all and gives everything for, for, for those to, to bring them to him. And that's the kind of love that, that I want to celebrate. It's certainly the kind of love that St. Valentine himself would have celebrated. He, he, was, he was beheaded by Claudius in 270 AD for marrying people. Uh, there's a bit of a longer story there. Claudius needed lots of soldiers for wars, and they thought that they weren't getting enough soldiers because the men were hankering after their wives, so they outlawed marriage. But St. Valentine refused to obey that outlaw and continued to marry young, young people and was beheaded for it. That's the kind of sacrificial love that we should be yearning for at Valentine's Day and more so reflecting and pouring out at Valentine's Day. So as we, as we close this, let's spend a bit of time praying. Let's sing a song. Let's respond to Christ just thanking him for all that he is, has done for us, for the enormity of the gap that he has crossed 
um, for the fact that we, like that servant that Andy spoke about, they had absolutely no way. Let's just get that into our heads right now. We had absolutely no way of making this right. When our hearts say to us, you're not that bad, you can make right, it's lying to you. The gap was insurmountable and Christ paid it all and covered it for us so that we could be reconciled with God. So, Lord, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you that, that when we look at very, very bad news like this parable, we stand on this side of the cross knowing the very, very good news that followed. And, Lord, I just want to thank you that in your wisdom you planted these stories and you left them to sit there for us to ponder and to grasp with the enormity of, of the challenge that we faced to allow us to come to a place where we could only bow the knee and, and, and put our arms out and say, Jesus, all I can do is throw myself at your mercy. Save me. And Lord, I just want to thank you that that's what you did for us. 2,000 years ago and every day that each and every one of us said those words and asked you to be Lord of our lives, you rescued us. And Lord God, on this day, I pray that you put a weight in our heart about how we express that love to the world, how we pour ourselves out for those around us, that, that not the ones that like us, not the ones that are going to make our lives better or have something of value for us, but how do we pour out our lives for those that despise us, for those that aren't worth our time, that will not give us anything in return. How do we pour out our lives for them? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us with that in your name. Amen.